Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Okay, we're here today with Daniel Grioli, um, who is both the Market Fox columnist for i3. He also does many of our interviews for the podcast and, of course, runs his own business, uh, Grioli & Co. So we thought this was a good opportunity to meet the man behind the Market Fox. So, Daniel, who is the Market Fox? Uh, Well, the Market Fox is a fictional character. The idea was born from a quote that's appeared in various places. Uh, One place that a lot of investors may have seen it was in Philip Tetlock's work on uh, expert political judgment, I think was his first book. And he used it as a metaphor for two kinds of forecasters. You have one kind which he called the hedgehogs, uh, and they're really good at doing one thing, much like a hedgehog is really good at burying itself into the ground. Uh, and then you have foxes that are they're a bit more of a generalist and they, uh, they have different skills. And what he found was that the hedgehogs generally attracted more publicity because they had this clear message that they always stuck to. They were consistent and they sold it. And also the message made for better headlines because it was generally extremely positive or extremely negative, but it was extreme. And he found that the foxes generally didn't attract much attention but they made better forecasts because they kept their options open. They understood that uh, they might not have all the facts or the facts might change. So they were able to understand the other side of the argument a little bit more. And so that led to them being more flexible in their approach. So I thought that was a good metaphor as well for how investors should approach the market. So hence Market Fox. Yeah, and I see you have one of Philip's books on your desk right here, Super Forecasting, where he, I think, makes a reference again uh, to this this story as well. Um, but foxes are also sly. Is that uh, an element that comes into it, or is that purely coincidental? Uh, I think I think you have to be sly, not sly in a sense of being dishonest or trying to hurt people. But one of the things I realized very early on in my career is that investing is generally about trying to figure out where consensus is wrong and and then how to take advantage of that. And so you have to have that mindset of being able to think independently and also able to look at how others are reasoning on something and spot where they might have gone off course. And you could call that sly in a way because if you think about it, a person who is sly is generally trying to be one or two steps ahead of what other people are doing. I, I, I like that quote, though, you, or, or quote, um, the remark that you made, investing is often about seeing where uh, consensus is wrong. 
Does that apply to all forms of investing or is that more descriptive of active investing? Well, I think every investment decision is an active one, but we can talk about that a little bit later. But on the topic of consensus, I think it's important to understand nuance. And that is you don't want to just take the opposite side of what everybody's doing all the time because there's obviously information in what happens in a market and a lot of the time that information's right. So it's not being contrary for the sake of being contrary. The other important thing to remember is that eventually you want your view to become the consensus. Otherwise, you don't profit from it. Yeah. You don't profit from being early unless everybody else catches up. So you want to hopefully spot the non-consensus view earlier than others, where it is a genuine non-consensus view, and then have the market catch up. Yeah, so we're already getting there into the area of behavior and, and psychology. And you started out studying uh, psychology. So what made you switch to asset management? Well, it's interesting. So I've invested most of my life uh, from when I was a young teenager. I think I bought my first shares in Commonwealth Bank with some money that I earned on a part-time job. So I'd always had an interest in that. My father invested in stocks during the uh, the 90s and did quite well out of that and that sort of piqued my interest. So at uni I was studying psychology and um, I got to third year and I, to be honest I got bored with it and I dropped out. <laughs> you got bored? I got bored with it. I got bored with the pace of learning at uni. Um, I just sort of, I'd, I'd reached the point where I wasn't sure why I was studying it. It's funny, sometimes you don't understand the purpose in things until later when you've figured it out for yourself and you can't give that wisdom to a teenager. So I stumbled into working in banking and at the same time I was actively investing and from that I, I continued to invest and I continued to find out that I enjoyed it very much, particularly when I moved out of home. So I actually remember uh, when I moved out of home, I moved to Perth and I purchased a copy of Benjamin Graham's Intelligent Investor. And I used to read it when I went to the laundromat to do my laundry. So while I was waiting for a load of washing, I read that. You thought you took up some easy reading? <laughs> and then after that, I read I read Bruce Greenwald's book on value investing also while waiting for my washing to be done. And it was a great thrill to, to be able to meet Bruce and sit in his classroom a few years later. So that's sort of where it started. And as I got more and more interested, I said, look, I need to formalize uh, what I do here. So I... I started to study again, so I started to study a Diploma of Financial Markets and then kept studying and moved on to different things in my career and kept studying. And it, it all started from there, but it was quite different to my first experience with uni in that this time I'd found something that actually interested me and that I wanted to learn. So um, I was uh, doing the homework wasn't hard, if you want to call it that. So Daniel, do you still find applications of psychology and finance? Absolutely. Um, not only applicable, but I think it's meant that I approach markets very differently to a lot of people. And, and by that, what I mean is most people in our industry are from either an accounting or a quantitative background. And they approach things very much from that mindset of trying to calculate, looking for precision, and in psychology, you learn that there's no precision when it comes to human behavior. And it was, in, it was an interesting experience because I remember in first year, you learn all these classic experiments in psychology, like the 
the marshmallow test, for example, with children where they, they put the marshmallow in front of them and they see if they've got self-control and then they follow up with those kids later and the ones that do have self-control generally have better life outcomes, although that conclusion has since been disputed. So this is, this is the study where they promise to give them more marshmallows if they hold off for longer? Yes, yeah. There is another version of that called the Oreo study, and it's really interesting because there was one little boy apparently who, he didn't take the Oreo, but he pulled it apart and ate the cream out and put it back. Yes, so <laughs> you have to be aware with what you promised them as well, right? That's a kind of sly that would make a good investor, I think. He, he complied with the rules, but he figured out another way. I think that's called bending the rules. Yes. <laughs> so... You learn all these things in psychology, and it's interesting. A lot of them have failed to replicate, and there's a big replication crisis in psychology. And I think the same thing is true in investing with a lot of factor research, but that, that's another topic we can get onto. But you learn these things in first year, and it all sounds so simple and clear-cut that uh, you know, cause-effect, you can measure it. And then in second year, you, you learn all of the exceptions. And I actually remember having a period in second year of psychology where I went to see one of my professors because I was really confused. I said, well, we learn all this, this information in first year. It was also clear. People do this. This is the reason why. And now you're telling me none of that matters and none of that works all the time. I, d I don't know what to do. And what I realized in that year and through my conversation with the, this professor is that it's actually the questions that matter. You're never going to find the answers, not with any certainty. And you have to become comfortable working with uncertainty. Uh, and so I take that same approach to investing. But a lot of people, I don't think, learn that lesson. They they try to, you know, whether it's through quantitative methods and working things out to the sixth decimal place or, or whatever, they try to look for certainty. And I, I don't think it's out there. Yeah, so that's almost um, over-specifying a problem or an answer to a problem. That sounds a bit depressing if there's no answers to the questions well, it's not depressing because you learn to have empathy for people and that, that can help you in all areas of life. You learn to understand the incredible variety that there is in people and also the capacity for change. Um, one of the things that I, I often joke with people about my background in psychology is I learned about the incredible capacity for people to change. I also learned not to bet on it. Right because generally we're creatures of habit, even though we can change in amazing ways. So, so learning that, uh, the other thing you learn is you learn to come to terms with your own emotions. And it's funny because I see a lot of investors that don't do that. And, and notice I said come to terms with not control because mm -hmm. we can't, we're human. But come to terms and be more accepting. So I hear a lot of stories, particularly with quantitative investors and Generally, there's a backstory where they weren't, in many cases, they weren't always a quant. And something's happened where they've said, that's it, I'm swearing off emotion totally. I'm going to make sure that emotion never affects an investment decision again. And it's almost like they've gone from one extreme to another where they were too emotional to now trying to get it out. And I don't think that's a realistic or achievable goal. Uh, and there's a lot of research to show that emotion is very important, for example, in risk perception. So I don't think you can ever take it out. I think what you have to do is come to terms with it. That's, that's a very interesting point because um, we had uh, last year um, a professor that we featured who was talking about emotions. And he pointed me to a book by Antonio Damasio, who was a neuroscientist. 
and he looks how emotions affect the, 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 the human brain, but also the conception of self and then decision making. And he actually, and I, I'm, I'm bringing it back to a very short conclusion and probably doesn't do full justice to his arguments, but he basically says, without emotions, you, you won't be able to recognize what is the right and the wrong answer. So you will never be able to make a decision because you will just get caught up in tangents and so he shows studies where people with uh, brain damage to certain parts of the brain who in previous life were highly successful, highly intelligent people, they still function on pretty much every level the same, except they can't make decisions anymore. So he gave an example where just simply after a meeting, he asked, okay, when, when are you available next time? Do you want to do the Wednesday or the Friday? And after that, the patient pretty much gave an hour and a half monologue about the pros and cons of doing the Wednesday against the Friday to the point that he had to cut him off and say, okay, let's do Friday. And then the patient was, oh yeah, that's fine. But he couldn't make the decision because he was going in such levels of detail. So you do need emotions to make the decisions in the end. So that sort of seems to what you're saying about coming to terms with emotions. You have to, to a degree, see where they're useful in, in, in making decisions. Absolutely. And, and I actually remember attending that lunch that you're referencing. And one of the papers that was cited there was a study of brain injury patients. And these brain injury patients were playing a card game with a stacked deck. And the rational part of their brain was still able to discern that the deck was stacked. I think after, I forget how many hands they played, they were able to figure out that the cards weren't behaving the way they should. And yet they weren't able to stop themselves from gambling. They literally gambled all the money in their pockets away uh, because they couldn't control the emotions. Uh, and then there have been other studies where people with brain injuries make more money when they go to the casino simply because they're absolutely fearless. They don't fear the losses. They don't feel the losses. So they just keep betting until they win. So you get these strange effects because people can't perceive risk correctly. Um, I think another part to it is a lot of people in investing have what I call an optimization mindset. So they're always trying to figure out the best way to do something. And I think that's the wrong way to approach a lot of problems. The famous scientist, uh, Herbert Simon, who won Nobel Prize, he talks about satisfying. And I think satisfying is a much better way. It leads to much more robust outcomes. And the idea is really you, you highlight a handful of key variables. Usually it's not more than three to six. And the first thing that meets those key variables, that's what you do. So it, it recognizes that there's often diminishing marginal returns to more information. So you find that the big things and you go with that. Um, that doesn't seem to happen very much in institutional investing. Everybody's focused far too much on optimizing. And it creates problems because you can't optimize the future. You don't know what the variables are. It hasn't happened yet. So the, the way I think about investment decision-making, it's decision-making in the face of uncertainty with incomplete information, the results of which you won't know sometimes for many years into the future. You're going to make a lot of mistakes. Or, or as my wife likes to point out when I say you make a lot of mistakes, she says, well, they're not really mistakes. They were guesses that just didn't pan out. You probably still made the right decision with the, right, with the information available at the time. That's right. So, so if that's the case, if you're going to make a lot of mistakes or guesses, whatever you want to call them, then the objective of your portfolio is not to optimize. It's to survive your mistakes. 
you got to flip it around. You, in, instead of trying to optimize, you're trying to create a structure where you can afford to be wrong and still have a good outcome because you're trying to aim for an outcome that's that's at a portfolio level and not necessarily at an individual decision level. Yeah, so not uh, optimize your, your hits but minimize your misses. That's a big part of it too. Yeah. So we, we talked about emotions and, and, and the uh, psychology part of investing. And sometimes that has been summarized as temperament and it takes the right temperament to be a good investor. And Professor Jack Gray, who we had earlier on the podcast, also spoke a bit about that. What do you think are the, the attributes of uh, an investor with the right temperament? Oh, there are many. Uh, so as you know, I'm writing about this at the moment. So I think patience has definitely got to be there. Many of the things that, particularly when it comes to active management, many of the opportunities that you're trying to exploit require time to work and they often go against you for periods, which makes sense because if there wasn't risk attached to it, there wouldn't be a, a premium. So you have to be patient enough to deal with that. I think you have to be flexible. It gets back again to the original comments about foxes and hedgehogs. A lot of people get very fixed on a certain way of doing things. And let's pick an example. We've had a 30-year period of falling interest rates, and that's been good for asset prices. So there's probably a lot of approaches out there where people have stuck to more or less the same way of doing things for 30 years and it's worked for them. People have built entire careers on doing things one way. If that regime changes, a lot of people like that are going to find it very hard to be flexible. Um, but being flexible is not necessarily the same thing as flip-flopping and changing your mind either. You need to be able to stick with the key tenets of your investment process. So I think they're important. The other thing that I think is very important is self-awareness. And I think it's important because it gets lost in groups. It It's very hard for groups to be aware. And I used to see this working institutionally all the time. Decisions get made and then the history of those decisions gets lost over time. You know, people come and go from the organization. Three or four years later, people might be reviewing an investment. Half the people on the board aren't there now that were there when it was made. Uh, they don't know the context. That sort of group awareness and self-awareness is really important. Self-awareness, I've literally, I'll give you an example. I've literally sat in a room with somebody that said to me, don't ever talk to me about investing in value managers again. We have lost so much money with value managers. I don't ever want to talk about it again. And then give it, what, a year, 18 months later, when value had had a really great run, was up sort of 40 or 50%, that same person in a room saying, have we got enough in value? Maybe we should add some more. Do you like any value managers? And of course, I'm crying out to tell them, hang on a second, I distinctly remember this time, this place, you said never talk to me about this again. And you can't. But you need to have that kind of awareness. Uh, you need to try Obviously, we're never going to succeed totally, but you need to try and keep yourself honest. So we moved on a little bit from uh, the focus on the individual as an investor to institutions as investors. And you got some critical opinions on institutional structures and how that affects the end beneficiary. You have in the past made some comments around the inherent conflicts of interest within institutions that lead to poor investment decisions. Can you talk us through that a bit? Look, I, I should say that institutions have a tough job and 
they're balancing a lot of things that are pulling them in different directions. So some of this, I guess, when you're actually in an institutional context makes sense. But having said that, is it optimal? Does it lead to the best outcomes? Probably not. So one of my biggest frustrations, particularly in Australia, is you'll hear a lot of people talk about Australia's, uh, last time I checked, it was two and a half trillion. It's probably more than that superannuation market. What a great job we've done. We've gone from zero to two and a half trillion dollars. And I listen to those comments. I think, no, no, you've got it backwards. We should be asking, why isn't it four trillion dollars? Because it could be if we ironed out a lot of these things. And what happens institutionally is decisions are made that there's there's obviously the priority of the member. And in, in a superannuation fund, uh, funds think a lot about their members. But there are also other priorities. There's the competitive position of the fund there is the staff and they're wanting to maintain their positions, the board. There are these other issues, there's regulation. So all of these have an influence. And what's happening now is the influence of these forces is, I believe, increasing because as Australia ages and more and more members move into retirement phase and start drawing down, that's like the tide that reveals who's wearing shorts or not. So as that tide goes out, it's going to affect some funds disproportionately over others. And so the the fear of what may happen if our contributions decline uh, or, or our net contributions turn negative or we don't achieve scale or whatever is now driving investment decisions probably more, I believe, than it ever has. And take the Royal Commission as an example. So the retail funds lost, I believe, around $5 billion in a quarter, I think I saw in the paper, post-Royal Commission. That all went to three industry super funds. It didn't go to 90, it went to three. So there are some very clear winners and a lot of losers. And in a market like that, particularly in a market where people haven't had to worry about that because guaranteed contributions have meant the money's kept coming in pretty much regardless of what you've done. And that's why I get back to that comment, patting yourself on the back that it's a $2.5 trillion industry. Well, when you're collecting 9.5% of everybody's waged, you know, win, lose or draw, and compounding that at a fairly high rate over the last 10 years, it's been pretty good. It's only natural you're going to end up with a large number. The question should be why isn't it larger and how do we reduce the frictions? Yeah, yeah. So there are some inherent uh, uh, problems there. And to a degree, these problems have also inspired you to set up your own firm. Can you tell me a little bit about how the journey has been and also what your plans are for the future? Well, it's been said that a lot of entrepreneurs start their businesses out of frustration. And I think that's certainly true of my case. Uh, I was very frustrated with what I was being asked to do and the way I was working. And the way I describe it to people is at a super fund, you're often working backwards. So you come up with the idea and then that's the easy part. The next part is getting your consultant on board, getting your board on board, pitching it to the rest of your team members, doing due diligence. People have questions, they have reservations about something, you do more work. Finally, you get it approved. Then you go through formal 
operational due diligence, tax, and other things. And it can sometimes literally be 12 months or more before you implement an idea. And over that time, often if it's a time-sensitive idea, pricing or opportunity has shifted. So it's working backwards is fine if you're happy to work in that sort of environment. I found it didn't suit me that well. The other thing that I found is that it's very difficult to experiment and learn iteratively. Because there's this scrutiny, obviously we need regulation. Regulation's important. I'm not suggesting that it get taken away. But sometimes people worry about trying things and making mistakes because they then worry about how they're going to have to explain it to somebody like a regulator. So they don't try things. And guess what? If you don't try things, you don't learn. So there's a tendency to sort of drift and just what we've always done it this way. And larger funds perhaps innovating a bit more, but only because they're forced to by the size of the assets they manage or by the competitive pressure or by this demographic shift. Innovation is always forced. It's not usually proactive. Um, I'm more of a proactive person. So looking at all of these things, I guess the other things that I was thinking about as well is that there's this big shift in technology that's allowing me to do what I'm doing now. I wouldn't have been able to do this 10 years ago um, because I wouldn't have the tools available to do it. So taking advantage of that. And also technology is changing the way people consume information. It's, it's changing the way ideas are shared and products are marketed. So all of those things, I think, make it possible for me to do what I'm doing now. So you work within some of the, the larger pension funds here in uh, Australia. What are some of the things that you do differently in your own business? I think firstly, there's this, there's this emphasis, as we d- discussed before, on optimizing. And in many cases, optimizing is used to justify a conclusion that people already want because the optimizer is very sensitive to the assumptions. So you put in a set of assumptions, you get the answer that you want, you also create a very scientific-looking paper trail demonstrating that that's what you should do. And lo and behold, when it doesn't work two or three years later, you repeat the same exercise and get a different answer because you put in different assumptions. So that's, that's one thing that I do differently is that everything that I'm doing is actually for a reason that has a a practical purpose and I often laugh to myself when I see for example in the industry press headlines that you know such and such reviewed their portfolio or such and such reviewed their investment process or such and such fund reviewed their governance and it was a three six twelve eighteen month review I laugh because to me that's a classic sign of those funds don't have skin in the game. If you're running your own business, as I am now, and you're going through cash burn, you are going to iterate much, much faster. You are not going to spend 18 months reviewing something. You need to figure things out a lot quicker. And so that's something that that I do very differently. The other thing that I do differently is portfolio construction is often far too complex at institutions you end up with a lot of marginal positions where you literally have 1% or 2% in an asset class. And sometimes that's necessary for an institution because the assets that they manage mean that they can't invest more in a particular opportunity. But often it's unwarranted, and it's certainly unwarranted for individuals or smaller institutions. They don't need to have all these marginal positions. And 
rather than diversify, they actually, I believe, make it harder to manage risk because they make it harder to tell what's going on in your portfolio. There's all these moving parts. Um, think about people who used to service their own car. It was very easy 20, 30 years ago to service a car. You open the bonnet and there's hardly anything there. Just an engine and a lot of space. Whereas now there's, it's, everything's computerized. You wouldn't dream of touching it. Uh, I don't think you need to run a portfolio that you can't understand. And I think modern institutional portfolios are getting that way. I think another thing that I do differently is that there's a lot of what I call packaging in institutional portfolios. And what I mean is you're paying a higher fee to reduce volatility or to have an ostensible diversification benefit. But really, you're it's questionable whether you're getting that benefit after the fee or if you are getting that benefit, it's usually because you're exchanging one risk for another. And so if you can remove the packaging and focus more on the total portfolio rather than the performance of the individual pieces, you can get the same or better outcome at a much lower cost. So a lot of what I do is about simplifying. It's about removing packaging. Another big feature is trying to figure out the edge of what I do or what my clients do. So you know, super funds and uh, a lot of institutions and even high net worth clients, they try to win at everything and you can't. You can't win at everything. The best investors figure out what they're good at and stick to that and, and try and implement simply and efficiently on the things that they're not as good at. So I'll give you an example. So one of the clients that I work with has deep expertise in property very, very deep expertise in property and is able to, through their network and their experience, invest in direct mortgages over property developments, something that for other people would be quite risky. But for this person, given their knowledge and experience, it's appropriate. Now, if I was a traditional wealth advisor, I would be advising them against that because I'm not making a fee on that. So every time they invest in these mortgages directly, they're doing that and it's not money that's in my account. So I'd be telling them they need to diversify and you know, they need to own all these other types of credit instead, you know, high yield and bank loans and emerging market debt and whatever else. But for that client, that's their edge. And so what I need to be doing really, if I'm putting my fiduciary duty first, is I need to help them manage the risk around what they're good at. So what I did with this client, I said, well, if you have this edge and you clearly do, don't diversify away from it, but control the risk of that in other ways. So for example, your Australian equity portfolio, reduce your bank shareholdings. So the, the mortgages that you have are effectively exposures to the Australian residential property market. The bank shares are effectively exposed to the same thing. So look at the two on a total return basis and it looks like you can make better money out of the loans with lower risk get rid of the bank shares same thing with your hybrids same thing with other forms of credit so you still diversify but don't take away your edge figure out what you're good at and the other things you know, international equities that maybe you're better off just doing that pass passively because you don't have an edge there concentrate on the things you do well so that's probably one of the biggest differences between uh, what I do now and what I did institutionally is that I'm able to say no to a lot more stuff and I'm able to help my clients figure out what they should be saying no to as well.
Very good. And you have hit some recent milestones. And I think as we speak, um, you're finishing up a funding round for the business. So what can we expect next year? Well, you're right. Today is the deadline for a capital raise. So uh, as you mentioned, I founded Griolian Company and Griolian Company has been providing advice for a little over a year. But I realized that uh, what I plan on doing is is bigger than what I can accomplish as one person. So I've been very lucky to find a group of partners and they've invested in a new business that we've created together, which uh, it, it went live a couple of months ago, but we haven't started marketing yet because we're still building products and things. And that business is called Giscard Capital. So as you said, we've just raised some capital to fund Giscard. And uh, hopefully in the new year, we'll be providing both uh, wealth management advice, but also uh, a range of investment strategies uh, for clients managed on a managed discretionary account basis. Now, you always like to ask some uh, devil's advocate questions in your podcast. So I'm going to ask you some. Uh Uh, you, You started an advice business. And one of the first things often people do when they meet a new client is to determine their risk tolerance. And I always look at that and think, well, everybody's risk tolerance is the same. They don't like going down and they always like going up. So is there actually a practical side to determining that? Well, if you look at the research that several psychologists have done, and there's a lot of work by a gentleman called Greg Davies out of the UK, they say that there is an underlying personality trait-like concept called risk tolerance. I'm not sure that may be true. I kind of take a different viewpoint, which is that even if it is there and it exists, uh, practically and operationally, it's almost impossible to access. And the reason I say that is because I think people's perceptions of risk are heavily context-dependent. And the example I give people is driving a car. I don't know about you, but... If I'm late for a job interview and I'm in my car on my own, I'm driving one way. If I've got my 18-month-year-old son in the back, I'm driving another way. If it's raining heavily, I'm driving another way. If I got fined for a speeding violation a week ago, I'm driving another way. If my mother-in-law's back in, in the back of the car, I'm driving another way. So I think people's perception of risk is heavily context-dependent. And even if there is this fundamental trait, if you want to call it that, the variability around it is so wide and so large, I'm not sure how the concept helps you very much. Yeah. So you don't use that in your uh, interaction with clients or is it more a form of determining and clarifying what their goals are and what the path towards their goal is? If you are going to look at people's risk tolerance, you're not going to find it in a questionnaire the way most people do. Um, You know, Let's be honest, most of what goes on is to satisfy, create a paper trail that satisfies the know your client rule. So do you know your client? Yes, I spent five minutes with them and got them to complete this questionnaire. But does the client know themselves? Well, that's right, that's right. And and which client are you talking to? Are you talking to today's client? You know, 20 years from now when they're suffering dementia, is that going to be the same person you're talking to? Uh, so a lot of this is done to satisfy uh, legal requirements, but not necessarily to produce the best investment decisions. So one of the things I think about with risk is that a lot of education is required in helping people understand what genuine investment risk is because people have 
in conflicting goals. So I had one potential client come to me uh, and they said, we want you to quote on providing us an investment policy and, and doing some consulting work. And that's fine. And they said, oh, we've, we've, this was a, a social club. We've taken the liberty of, or not the liberty, it's their, their prerogative. We've written our own investment policy statement. And we've come up with what we think our benchmark portfolio should be and what we think our target returns and risk should be. And they'd come up with a 70-30 portfolio that they thought would make them inflation plus five. And I thought about it. I thought, and this is a tough decision. And you get tested like this when you start a new business. You get tested all the time. This is something else we can talk about. These forks in the road where you have to make decisions and they're not always easy or clear. So I thought, well, I can I can tell them, yeah, sure, I can get you CPI plus five with a 7030 because we can go into venture capital and we can go into private equity and we can go into emerging market debt and uh, we can put some CTA that will be perfectly negatively correlated with the equity market that will reduce your risk. And we, yeah, I can I could tell them that I could do that and we'll optimize it and we'll create it. Or I could try and reset their expectations to be more realistic and see what happens and hope that of all the advisors they're going out to talk to, my honesty hopefully is refreshing and stands out. And that's what I did. I, I used some of the, the great work that Research Affiliates does because they have that interactive asset allocation tool. And unlike many tools, it actually works in Aussie dollars as well. So you can, you can use it for Australian investors. And I put in their asset allocation into that and generated a few simulations. And I showed there was less than 5% chance they were going to hit that return target. Wow, yeah. And I said to them, look, maybe what we should be doing is just having a conversation beforehand and just talk about what your true objectives are. And I think they went with somebody else. But that's also an important part of know your client is you also got to know which clients you don't want. Because some clients, you're just never going to be able to make them happy. And the sooner you figure that out, the better it is for both of you. So that, that's an important part of know your client that people don't often talk about. You often finish up with um, tips. And I thought maybe you can give us some tips, both looking back at your career within the super funds as sort of an asset allocator and now seeing the other side as well where you're focusing more on a holistic financial picture. What, what are some of the top three tips that you would give people that want to go down your route? Well, in terms of, I'll give two sets of tips. So I'll give tips for people that work in institutional funds management and, and want to keep doing that. And then I'll give some tips about what I'm doing now. So in terms of institutional funds management, when people ask me about superannuation, they say, you know, what's superannuation like in Australia? I say there isn't one market. There's really three, I would think there's sort of the 10 or 20 largest funds and there's sort of a lot in the middle and then there's a long tail of smaller funds and if you look at the flows and the growth and you can see this on the KPMG website because they pull every fund's APRA data and they put it into an interactive tool and you can play with it we've got 10 years worth of data there it's the 10 or 20 largest funds that have got all the growth and the more favorable demographics uh, so institutionally, if you want to have a long career, it's got to be in those funds because the others are suffering or will be suffering. Um, and I believe it's a question of time as to how long they remain viable. And I, I don't know whether it's one year, five years, 10 or 15, but 
I believe it will certainly happen before my career is over. And that was part of me deciding what I wanted to do now. I think you also have to understand, and, and I've written about this, what you're good at. If you're geared more towards consensus decision-making, if you're good at running a political process where you have to get buy-in from people and things like that, that's you know, super perfect for you because that's how it all runs. If you are more investment-oriented and you want to make decisions and you want to try things and you want to sometimes fail but learn and move on, it's very hard to do that in a superannuation context. So I think a big part of it is also figuring out what you're good at. One of the things I'm finding now is that because I'm talking to people whose money it actually is, the conversations are totally different. I'm not talking to somebody who's appointed to manage somebody else's money. And I'm not saying that these people are irresponsible in the way they manage money. They definitely try to do their best and they're smart and they work hard, but it's a very different conversation. And I find this conversation suits me far better. Um, I find that you build relationships this way, for me, a lot quicker. And um, you, you very quickly work out whether you can work with somebody or not. So I think you've got to figure out an environment that suits you. For me, learning is a big part of what suits me. And I was starting to find that a bit difficult in an industry superannuation fund context. Uh, in terms of starting your own business, you reach many periods of what I call going around the dark side of the moon. So if you think back to the first trips to the moon, the Apollo missions, there was a period where the lunar orbiter went behind the dark side of the moon and nobody could talk to the astronauts. They couldn't talk to Earth. So everybody in NASA and Florida is sort of holding their breath. You know, what if something goes wrong? We'll never know. We've lost three people. And then they come out from the dark side of the moon and everybody's happy. And you get these periods running a business where you don't know if what you're doing is going to work and you're relying on other people or you're waiting on something. And it's a bit nervous. But I've found that they're the periods where you have to push on the hardest because generally that dark side of the moon period happens just before something really big goes in your favor. It's, it's almost like you're being tested. And you, you often get tested as well in that uh, I, I've had to make a few difficult decisions and a few difficult trade-offs at different points. where And they're always when you're at the point of something big and you have to decide really whether you're in or where you're out. And I find that people reward you if you're clear about something. So this is another thing I found. Uh, you know, when I started off, for example, I started working from home and then I took a small office in the city and a few people said to me, you know, why are you doing that? You're increasing your overheads. And, you know, shouldn't you do that later when your business is a bit more certain? And what I found was having the office, well, one, I think it's a very different mindset when you come into work every day. So there's the positive benefit you get a bit more interaction with other people as well. But I also found it made a statement to the people that I was dealing with. So they could see I was serious. They could see I wasn't just, you know, pretending to try this and then if it didn't work, I'd apply for a job somewhere. Uh, and I think people want to know that. They want to know that you're real and they want to know that you've risked something. Again, and this totally changes the conversations you have with people. And what I've found is when people see that, they actually start to want to help you. 
this is what a lot of people don't get. They think, well, you know, if you go out and you're a new business and you don't have a track record and all these things are still under development, that's going to turn people off. It's like, no, it doesn't turn people off because people see that as the ultimate expression of your belief. They say, well, there must be something to what he's doing because he's just gone way out on a limb to try it. That's interesting. Um, so I, I found that and I found that you build better relationships faster with people because of that, because you're connecting with them, not just on an intellectual or an investment level, but because they start to believe in what you're trying to build and why. And I, I don't think you can, I think it's easy to underestimate the power of that. Yeah. And I thought it was also interesting what you mentioned a bit earlier that partly how technology has developed and also communication has developed, uh, it allows you to do this more easily. And I know that you're quite active in sort of discussing with uh, like-minded investors or asset allocators overseas and just throwing out topics and ideas and see what they think of it. Can you give us an example of how that has helped shape your thoughts? Well, it's helped in a lot of ways. So I've met some fantastic people and until you try it, Again, you don't know the relationships you make. I've literally gone to the US and met people that I met on Twitter. And you, you're at an event and you see the other person like, oh, you're, you're Daniel, you're the person that posted that. I'm like, yeah, that, that was me. And, and, and then you have other conversations and things. You meet people and you, you talk about things. And some of these people have, have been guests on the podcast as well eventually. Yeah, until you try that, you don't understand how powerful it is. And I think, again, it's because it's authentic. And, you know, when I look at, and this is a topic that's coming out in a future podcast episode, when I look at a lot of the digital media that traditional asset managers make, basically they're, they're putting their press releases or their monthly performance format or their monthly market view into digital format. And they're missing the whole point of the internet, which is that it's interactive. Yeah. Um, and... The people that are doing it really well are being far more open, authentic, approachable. They're being themselves. They're having a bit of fun even. And I think that's the great, the great potential here that more people in the asset management industry have to take advantage of. And it's hard because, and I know this institutionally, not all institutions are open to having their staff you know, have a voice on social media. Uh, or if they do, they police it quite strictly. So I understand why some people, and you know, we've, I've even found that, for example, with the podcast, you talk to some guests and they say, oh, I have to check with my marketing department, my compliance department, and I have to check with this other department, and I'll get back to you and you don't hear from them again. So I think a lot of that's got to change. You know, again, it gets back to this idea of the hedgehog, right? A lot of people have built a career doing things a certain way for 30 years, and uh, who who was it that said it about science? He said science advances one funeral at a time. I think the same thing is true for asset management. Asset management, I should say. Um, and uh, there's there's probably a few people that have to move on before things change. Yeah. Now I think it's an interesting thought that that when you look at social media, sometimes um, the negativity through trolling can also overshadow some of the positive interactions and, and communications that people have there and, and the world definitely has come smaller. It's funny too. So you mentioned the, the, the flip side of that is, is there are some fantastic investors that I started following because I thought, oh, you know, 
such and such is going to post all of his research and it'll be fantastic because I'll get alerted to it as soon as it's posted. And after a while, I just had to stop following them because I found that they were not very nice people. <laughs> so, so great in investing, great research, but do I want to see them tweet their political views or do I want to see them tweet and argue with other people? No, not really, because it just raises my blood pressure and doesn't help me with any of the things I need to do. So it's funny. It can actually be quite revealing that sometimes some of the people that you most respect as investors, when you follow them on Twitter, they're people that you don't necessarily respect as much as people. You definitely get to learn a lot more about people. Well, you brought up the hedgehogs, which is a, um, a very nice way of making a full circle to this story in a traditional journalistic sense. So, Daniel, thank you very much for this podcast and uh, all the best with your new business. Thank you, Wada. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.